0: Good morning! So so affirming every time. Um, My name is Mike Overstreet. I am one of the pastors here, and I will be leading us in our teaching today. And we're actually going to continue on in a series we have been going on for about two months now. And we took time basically to sit down in the book of Exodus and to take almost three months to try to unpack some of the major themes, symbols, movements, characters, and stories. And that's because the book of Exodus is the central book of the Old Testament. But more than that, it's almost impossible to exaggerate how important it is to the entire biblical narrative. I mean, you basically can't understand what Jesus is getting at, what the Old Testament's trying to teach us, without understanding the book of Exodus first. It's that important. In this this current phase of our exploration of the book, we are sitting in this second act, pretty much, where in the first act of the story, God liberates and, and saves his people from slavery as an act of grace. And in the second act, we're starting to look at how this God has taken his people and is beginning to reshape them. He's beginning to act in specific ways to transform them into something new in the world. Basically, God is acting and in their response. They're starting to become a little bit more like him. And today, we're going to look at our second part, or not our second, but another moment when God acts and seeks to transform his people in response to it. And to get at it, I actually want to start by talking about one of my, one of my deep loves in the world. If you've been coming here for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about it before, but it is film and cinema. I am a mega movie geek. Um, I mean, I, I just, I eat films as often as I can, pretty much. And that's because I think film. And movies have this unbelievable ability to kind of capture truths about our humanity, our beliefs, our hearts, and our worldview. I think almost more than any other medium of storytelling, I have found those truths through film. And today, I want to share with you one of my guilty pleasures from cinema. It is a specific genre that I just love to hate. It's called the revenge film genre. For those that don't know, this fine type of art follows a very simple format in almost every film that you'll see from it. There's an innocent person, said person gets wronged, said person brings biblical justice and vengeance upon whoever caused the wrong, and chaos ensues. And I mean, I just keep coming back to this genre, <laughs> despite the fact that it's probably not great art. And I just want to throw out a few um, examples of it. And I also want to throw out a PSA. These are not PG. Do not go home and watch them on family movie night. I did not tell you to do that. Do not email me, okay? Are we good? Okay, so the first one I want to talk about and try to get at this genre is actually kind of debatable about whether it falls within it. Some would argue it's a crime thriller, which it is, but I also think at its heart, it has this structure pretty evidently built within it. It's a movie from the late 80s called The Untouchables. Does anyone here have seen it? Popular? Yeah. It's a film about a team of police that go after Al Capone. And what ends up happening is this escalating cycle of retaliation and carnage and chaos all the way through. And there's one specific scene that just like highlights the thought process and the the structure behind these films. So I just want to play it. You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. That's the Chicago way. Yeah, and I mean, that film just captures what this genre is about. You want to get the bad guys, you want justice. The only way to do it is by being badder than they are, right? Hospital, you're going to the morgue. And there's actually a, a more recent and pure example of it that I want to throw out. It's a movie that I just adore. Who's seen John Wick? Well, you're all condemned. It's a wicked generation. No, I'm just kidding. I love, I love this movie, but this is like a pure revenge flick. Basically what it's about is this guy has a dog. He is an ex-assassin who's trying to lead the clean life, and then the Russian mob breaks into his home and kills his dog, and he proceeds to exterminate the entire Russian mob over it, <laughs> which is the part of this, this is probably the movie I relate to the most, because like, if I have a wonderful dog named Hank and if you broke into my house and were a Russian mobster and killed Hank, I'm not saying that this is what I would do, but I'm not not saying it. <laughs> but this is just, like, like I said, a perfect example, right? There's something innocent. It's wronged by evil. Retaliation and vengeance is fierce. Um, and there's other movies. I mean, you can think of probably Kill Bill. Uh, don't go home and watch that one. You can think of movies like The Equalizer, which uh, they always have the and a word after it most of the time. And uh, The Lord of the Rings. It's a joke, just making sure you're paying attention. You're not? Okay. That's not a revenge movie. But I am just, <laughs> I am just fascinated by this genre. On one hand, because it is a guilty pleasure, right? It's, they're violent, they're dark, they're action-packed, it's just straight a general and all the way through, and I'm just a junkie for it. But what mostly fascinates them is actually something a lot deeper. You see, I'm actually fascinated by the draw of them within us. I think the reason we're coming back to movies like this is that they appeal to a broken part of our humanity that we often don't want to talk about. And that is, they depict a fantasy world defined by simple and immediate justice when it comes to what we perceive as evil in our world. You see, I think a lot of us, myself included, begin to look at our world and we see a lot of complex and horrifying injustices. We see bad people or people we would call evil committing wrongs and nothing happens. Or we see good people or people we would call righteous being harmed with no recompense. And I think this can confuse us. It can make us afraid. It makes us feel unsafe. And in that space, I think these movies play just a really intriguing role because what they do is, in a dark way, they provide us with a sense of comfort, don't they? We can watch a movie that depicts a vision of the world that we can find really appealing if we don't think about it. Simply put, a world in which evil is dealt with swiftly and decisively via the same means that it has loosed on our world. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, evil for evil, the bad guys getting beat up by the good guys, even if the good guys are taking part in the exact same actions when you really think about it. I think we're drawn to these because in that confusion, it just gives us a simple vision for our world that makes us feel safe. And I bring this genre up because I think this worldview gives us a backdrop for where we're going today in Exodus. You see, we're coming to a defining moment in the story that centers around how God responds when his people wound him, wrong him, reject him, rebel against him utterly. And in this story, we have to ask a critical question that will define the direction of the rest of the Bible. Is this God of the Exodus the revenge movie God, where when he is wounded, he responds ten times the vengeance? Or is this God a God that goes a different way? Is this a God that acts completely outside of that normal, broken human instinct that I have when I want vengeance? Is this a God that rejects eye for an eye justice in favor of mercy? That's what's at the heart of the story we're going to dive into today. Now to set it up, I want to actually start by picking up where we left off last week. So last week, Sam taught and he walked us through this part of the story where God has led Moses to this place called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God has done this thing called covenanting with the Israelites. And as Sam taught, this covenant idea was an ancient form of almost treaty making or contract making. It was a a way of, of making an agreement between a king and his people in which they said, we will be your people, we will live in this way in the world, and you'll look after us, protect us, et cetera, et cetera. And we looked at how God makes this covenant with his people, where he says, I will be your God if you live like I do in the world. And then the section ends with the Israelites as a whole community saying, yes, sir. They agree to the covenant. They go up Mount Sinai, or not they, Moses goes up Mount Sinai for 40 days to basically receive the expectations of this new life with God. The Ten Commandments, a new vision for living in our world, living with each other, living with God, becoming God's people, right? And when the narrative picks up again later in Exodus 32, we start with a heartbreaking story. We read in Exodus 32, 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, "'Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me.'" So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, "'These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt.'" When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, "'Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord.'" So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, And afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So just 40 days after making this firm commitment with God, we find this story about the Israelites requesting and making this thing that we have come to call a golden calf. Now, to really understand what is happening, we need to sit with and unpack the Israelites' request and their actions. Because what's actually going on here is a dramatic betrayal and rejection a moment of rebellion in the Exodus story. You see, when you look at the Israelites' request, you're going to start to find that it goes a lot deeper than we might first think. We read that the Israelites say to Aaron, come, make us gods who will go before us. Now, this might be an odd request for us in the modern world. How do human beings make gods, right? That's not how we think about gods. But if you were a person in the ancient world, one of Israel's neighbors, a person within Israel, you understood what's going on here immediately. You see, what they're asking Aaron to do is to make him this thing called an idol. Now, if you don't know what idols are, let me walk through that briefly. In the ancient world, the polytheistic religions that surrounded Israel would make these stone, uh, metal, or wooden statues that they thought represented one of their gods, right? So they would craft it, they would shape it to look like how they thought this god looked, an image of it, and then they would install it in a house or a temple. And then they would start to take part in some rituals, festivals, sacrifices in which they believed that that idol became the very presence of that God among them. And then they would worship it as a God. So why is this important? Well, you need to understand that in our story today, there's something majorly wrong going on when Israel partakes in this. You see, In the Bible, it is very clear that idolatry, the creation and worship of idols, is utterly prohibited by God for his people. It is actually, more than anything else in the Bible, totally banned. And this is because the prohibition against idolatry was central to who the Israelites were supposed to be as a people in the world. You see, at the heart of the chosen people of God was the idea that they were unique from the surrounding peoples and nations. They were set apart. They were supposed to be different. In particular, they were unique in the way that they worshiped and lived with the one true God. In fact, this is such an important part of who they are. The very first two expectations of the Ten Commandments of God's covenant with his people begins with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. Also translated as an idol. So the very first thing the Israelites do after agreeing to uphold this covenant with God forever is that they break its first two and most foundational expectations and commitments. And it's actually... Worse than that. You see, they make two statements about this idol that are just utterly, utterly damaging to God's heart. The first one, it says that they want these idols so that they can have gods that will go before them. Now, if you recognize this language, it's because it shows up over and over again in the Exodus, except for the God that goes before the Israelites in the wilderness leading them to the promised land is who? It's God. It's Yahweh. So they take a statement about what God has been doing for them, the whole story, and they say, we want new gods to do that. And the second one is, I think, even worse. You see, when Aaron makes it, he says, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And I'm not sure if you caught it, but that's very important language. The very first line of the covenant, the piece of the covenant I just read, And the line that you'll see God say about himself over and over again in the Exodus is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So, they don't just break the commandments by making this idol. They take God's own statement about himself, about his commitment to be their people, about all that he has done for them and liberating them, and they transfer it to a new idol or a new God instead. I mean, to put it simply, it's not just that they want idols made, it's that they have decided to replace God in how they remember their past story and in the guidance of their future journey with a new God that they think will do what God has promised to do better than he will. We almost can't wrap our heads around how utterly, utterly devastating this is. I mean, this is a dramatic act of betrayal and rejection. In the following moment, I mean, it's defining for the rest of the Bible. Because how this God responds will determine if the story goes on. How this God deals with this moment will decide the future of Israel, the entire story of God. And we find his response in two critical conversations between Moses and God. First, we find a conversation in which God responds with complete and utter heartbreak and hurt. It's a really raw moment where God just opens up about the pain and how deeply he's been wounded. And his first thing he says to Moses is that he's just going to do away with Israel. He's going to reject them as his people. He's just done with them. He says, I'm going to start over with someone new, a people who actually will follow my calling. And if the story stopped there, Bible over. No Israel, no Jesus, end of the narrative. But what comes after is a profound back and forth between Moses and God, in which Moses responds in a way that we might not expect, especially after his family has pretty much hit rock bottom. He confronts God directly. We read in Exodus 32, But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all that this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people to disaster. And there's just so much we could explore in this text. We could actually take an entire series to unpack the golden calf debacle. But I want to highlight two fascinating parts. First, there is Moses' response. He essentially confronts God by pointing to two things. He points to how God will be known in the world based on how God responds in this moment and by calling on God to remember who he is through his commitments to Israel's ancestors. In other words, he asks God, What do you want to be known by in this world? What kind of God do you want the people around you to to think you are? A God who breaks oaths, a God of vengeance, or a God of something else? Which is a pretty daring response from Moses. But even more fascinating is how God responds to this confrontation. Because I promise you, if you have wronged me utterly, and then you come to me, and you're like, remember who you are. Remember how that promise you made to me like 400 years ago? I would backhand you back to last week. (laughs) And yet, it says God relents. He chooses to go a different way, to change course, and to not bring, quite frankly, the judgment that our worldview of vengeance tells us that he needs to exact in order to bring balance and justice to the world again. He chooses not to. And I don't know about you, but the idea that God believes that he needs to relent and to show mercy after all of this in order to stay true to who he is and in order to be recognized as he truly is by the people of our world, I think that is powerful enough already. I think that is a powerful testament to who this God is. But what's amazing is actually what comes next in the story. You see, there's this second part of this conversation that continues on. Having relented from judgment, God tells Moses that he will still fulfill the agreements he's made to Israel's ancestors by the letter of those agreements. He says, you're right. I promise to give you a a future home, the promised land. I will let you have it. I'm going to make sure you get it, but no more. He says, I'm going to give you the promised land, but I won't go with you to it. Which given the fact that that was exactly what they said they wanted through the golden calf story, they want the promised land, but they want a new God to go with them to it, that seems like a pretty generous response, right? And yet, and I think this is where it gets cool, because this is the moment where I think we find what is totally going to light the way for the rest of the biblical story. We read, again, that Moses confronts God. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that, pe- that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Now again, there's a lot going on here, right? God tells Moses he won't go with Israel to the promised land. Moses confronts God again, but this time... He's asking for something more than just for God to relent in his judgment. He is asking God to be present and to directly lead a people that have literally just rejected both of those things. And what Moses says in his appeal is incredibly forward. Again, he basically challenges God and appeals to God by saying that God not going with Israel would mean a few things. It would mean, in Moses' appeal, that God's character his name would be tarnished. In his appeal, he says it means that our relationship, the one between Moses and God, would be betrayed on God's side of that relationship. Moses implies that God's own ability to honor his commitments in word would be damaged. And he appeals to God by saying that Israel's destiny God's people, the very destiny of who his people are supposed to be would be lost if he does this. A pretty dramatic response, given that all of those things are things that Israel put in jeopardy and things that Israel broke in the golden Calf story. If you're like me, you're left stunned. Like, that's pretty dang bold, Moses. Especially after everything that's taken place. In fact, my broken humanity tells me there is only one response to this moment, to evil, to the wounding, to the pain, and it's to go the path of revenge. It's to go the path of old Sean Connery. You stab me, I shoot you, put me in the hospital, you're going to the morgue. Vengeance, not presence and mercy, is where my heart often tells me this story should end. And yet... In the face of utter betrayal, rejection, wounding, this God chooses to be known in sight of the world as a God who relents, a God who takes the wounding, a God who takes all of it, and beyond just forgiving it, says, I'm going to extend my very presence, all of who I am, to the people who had done the wounding, the betraying, and the rejecting. I mean, this is a God that doesn't just say, it's cool, you're forgiven. He one-ups that and says, I will be with you in response to my own pain. That's profound. And I think this just lights up God and what he wants to see done in us, in our world, in so many ways. First, I think it teaches me about what this God sees as being central to his character, who he thinks he needs to be in order to be true to himself in the world. I think when I look at the story, I believe that Moses took a chance and bet correctly that this God is going to be true to who he has said he would be time and time and time again. A God of second chances. A God that extends infinite do-overs to the failures and the rejects of our world. A God that, in the face of vengeance, that I think in that toxic way is justice. Instead, Chooses to faithfully define himself by an eternal commitment to go a different way. Forgiveness, grace, mercy. God tells us in this story that he can't be known without knowing that he is merciful. Second, it also teaches me what this God wants to heal in our world. You see, there's a great lie at the heart of the revenge film genre. They tell us that we can take part in revenge and vengeance and violence, the very tools that we call evil, without losing ourselves or humanity in the process. The image of the revenge film is that good guys can do the exact same things that they oppose in response to evil without becoming evil themselves, and that is not true. I mean, what this God knows that I often forget is whether we see it or not partaking in the tools of violence, evil, revenge, has a way of chipping away at us piece by piece, slowly but surely, until we cannot be who God intended us to be anymore. It reminds me of this parable that I heard that stuck with me. There was a monk and a warrior, and the warrior comes to the monk and says, teach me the truths of heaven and hell. And the the funny part about these stories is the monks are always jerks. And the monk just starts being ruthless to this guy. He's like, you can't understand heaven and hell. You're a moron. You're a buffoon. You're just a a stupid soldier. And he is just laying into him about, I'll never get it. He's not smart enough. Why are you wasting my time? And this warrior is just getting more angry and angry and angry. And eventually, he's just done with it. His heart gets to this place where he's just like, I'm going to shut this guy up for what he has said to me. And he pulls out his sword. From that place, he is about to kill the monk. And the monk says, that's hell. The place in which he got, in which he could no longer see the humanity of a person because of the rage and the wrath that had built up inside him. The point where he almost took a life over the damage of his pride. And in that moment, he realized that there was another way. The warrior realizes that he had it all wrong. That... There is a moment where someone was willing to give their life to teach him the truth of love, grace, mercy. And in gratitude, he falls on his knees and the monk says, that's heaven. You see, I think this God sees cycles in our world. The cycle of vengeance, revenge, and retaliation. Doesn't that so often define how we exist as human beings? A never ending cycle, eye for eye, wound for wound, evil for evil, that is just destroying our world and us in the process. Every time, us believing that the way to defeat evil is to use the tools of evil against it, losing ourselves in the process. And I think God looks at this cycle and He says, I'm going to break it the only way i know how by rejecting its central premise entirely this god says i will not partake in it in fact i'm going to take the wounding i'm going to take the pain and i'm going to respond to it in a different way from this moment through the cross this god chooses to defeat this cycle by transcending it and healing it in the most divine and holy way i know through the willingness to relent in the face of mercy through the willingness to extend grace to the thing that we think can't in any way deserve. I mean, the story of the Bible is a God who is willing to do that. He says, I'm going to heal this world. I'm going to heal it through mercy. And finally, I think it teaches me how this God wants to go about that healing in our world. Through the messy human beings that he has totally committed himself to. God could have snapped his fingers and started over. But he didn't. Instead, he chose to stick with us. To invite the very human beings that caused the wounding to take part in the healing, transforming, and blessing. I don't know about you, but I don't think God comes into this equation without knowing that we are going to fall down and mess up again. I don't think God is caught off guard when we backtrack, when we rebel, when we fall short, and yet he still chooses us to be part of building a better world, the world that he wants to see. I think he chooses to heal our world by working alongside us, reshaping in transforming us, not through judgment and vengeance, but through grace and mercy, through a people who have fallen down, but know that at the center of who they are is a God that is totally sold out to picking them back up. A people who are defined by being a place of do-overs and second chances. A people who have been so radically transformed by a God who relents that they are utterly faithful to mercy. A people who themselves are capable of relenting. I think that's how God wants to see his will done in this world. Our God is a God who is willing to take the risk of being wounded because he is all in on us. This is who this God is when it matters most, a God who delights in showing mercy. And as someone who has caused many wrongs, has committed many betrayals, has caused any number of wounds, that is good news. I am able to know that despite all of that, this God looks at me and he looks at the worst thing I've ever done, and he says, I want to be with you there, faithfully loving you and extending grace. Most of all, shaping me in response to that grace into something new, something better. So I would just close with two questions I just want us to ask ourselves today and this week I think the first is where do you need to hear the story of a God who relents, a God who will not be known in his world outside of grace and mercy? See, where in your life do you still believe that there's something that is just too bad, too broken, too jacked up for this God? Where in your life is there a golden calf that you think this God can't forgive? Because I need you to hear that that God is trying to meet you right there. That this God looks at that part of your life and says, I want to be present with you, leading you to the promised land. This God, despite anything we've done, is totally sold out to blessing you. I heard it, a theologian put it this way. The character of God means that he will always be a God who is willing to relent in his judgment of broken people but he will never be a God who is willing to relent in a desire to bless, renew, and restore those people. This is who this God is. And second, and this is a question that I think is just so important for us today. When the surrounding peoples and the nations look at us as God's people, how we live how we treat others, how we respond to wrongs, how we exist in our world, what kind of God do they see in us? Do they see a people defined by vengeance, revenge, retaliation, the exact same thing this world has ever known? Or do they see a people who, in the face of the worst things about this world, hold on tirelessly to a belief that God's purposes are only achieved through mercy and grace? A people who will not let go of a vision of our world that says it is on the other side of forgiveness that God is triumphant, not the other side of revenge. I think if people look at us and they don't see these things, we are lost as God's people in the wilderness. And I don't know about you, but have you looked at our world lately? Does our world need more retaliation? Does our world need more vengeance? Has anyone looked at our world lately and said, man, some more revenge would really fix things around here? Or have you seen it and said, man, this world could use a little bit more mercy and grace? I don't know about you, but that's an obvious answer to me. So where do you need to relent, to extend forgiveness, to give mercy, to live out grace in your life, in your world? because God is calling you to be those things in our world, because God has chosen to be in those things in our world, and our world desperately needs them. I I just believe that our God, at his core, is a God who relents, chooses to be known by mercy. I believe that in response, the beautiful part of this is I can become someone capable of doing those things better too. And in doing so, I can be part of healing this world. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more beautiful God or a more beautiful calling. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.